Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. I am happy to have on the show John Berger. He's a contributor to Fortune magazine, a former senior writer at Fortune and Money. Uh, he's an award-winning freelance journalist, written for Time, Barron's, and Bloomberg Business Week. He has appeared on a wide variety of television stations. He's currently slumming it with us, which we hugely uh, appreciate. And uh, he's written a book that I really recommend you grab. We'll put a link to it below. It's called Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lobsided Numbers Game. Uh, thanks a lot, John, for taking the time today. You're welcome. So let's just go over the thesis uh, briefly. I've got some real questions to drill down more into the data, but uh, why, why is it so tough for women uh, to settle down, and why is there so little incentive for men to do so these days? Well, my book focuses on, on educated people, on college grads. And uh, women have been attending college at a much higher rate than men going back to the, to the 1990s and, and at a somewhat higher rate than men going back to the 80s. So as a result, last year you had 35% more women than men who graduated from college. Translates into four uh, millennial college grad women for every three millennial college grad men. So it's a numbers game. Um, there just there aren't enough college educated men for all the college educated women. And this, you argue, fundamentally changes behavior in a supply and demand fashion. And you had a fascinating example of a topic I think that we've woefully underexplored, at least on this show, which is the topic of fish sex. Uh, and I think you've got some very good uh, examples. I wonder if you could break those out for our listeners. It's not just men who can become cads. Uh, it seems to be fairly common throughout the animal kingdom when there's an oversupply of women. Uh, what happens to male uh, monogamous behavior? Yeah, so it doesn't just make it statistically harder for women to find a match. As you said, it changes behavior too. And the, the, a lot of the social science on human behavior as it relates to sex ratios grows out of zoology or animal behavior. And the study you referenced looked at um, a species of fish that is nominally monogamous, or at least monogamous during mating season. And um, the researchers um, played around with the sex ratio in a controlled population. So when, when it was 50-50, or five males for every five females, the, uh, the males deserted the females, deserted their female mates at about a 20% rate. When researchers took the, um, the sex ratio from five to five to six males for every four females, the male desertion rate was cut in half, um, I think from 20% to about 11%. Uh, so basically, the males became more protective and more invested in their mates and in their offspring as females became less uh, less numerous. What was really interesting is what happened um, when they took it in the other direction, when they changed the sex ratio so it was six females for every four males. What happened was the male desertion rate went from about 20% to 52%. So the, the prevailing mating culture went from what we humans might call um, uh, monogamy to uh, polygamy. Uh, so it, it's the, 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 the dating incentive, dating, the mating incentives for the, the, the male fish 
changed because the, their odds of having maximum numbers of offspring were better um, mating with multiple females, even if that meant that their first brood, so to speak, was left vulnerable, vulnerable to predation, they were still likely to have more offspring overall um, if they mated with multiple females. Whereas their best bet when the males were in oversupply was to stick with one mate and protect her. Right. So if I understand that correctly, monogamy and chivalry are market adaptations to a scarcity uh, of females. So you have to bring more uh, to the table and uh, uh, sort of uh, the the spray and pray, the pump and dump, the uh, idea of one night stands or hooking up is an evolutionary programmed response, again, free will and all that, but it's an evolutionary uh, programmed response to an excess supply of eggs, so to speak. I mean, both extremes are evolutionary adaptations. Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying one is is the norm, and and the other one is a um, is a reaction to supply and demand. I, I think there's a continuum there. Um, uh, but as I write in the book, you know, we're not fish. We're not rodents. Uh, people have a moral compass, and I, I do believe that. You know, as a financial writer, somebody who typically covers financial markets, the long history of inefficient behavior changing once you shine a light on it. And I kind of feel like that applies here as well. Right. So the argument, I guess, is that once people understand the degree to which sex ratios determine courtship or sexual or mating rituals, then they can adjust their behavior to adapt uh, to it. I, I think you mentioned uh, in the book a couple of examples like the January effect and the, uh, the, the analysis, the money ball analysis of, of baseball statistics. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I, are your listeners going to be interested in the January effect, or should I, should I skip that? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, we've got a lot of, we do shows with economists quite a bit, so pretty, pretty financially okay. and a mathematically literate audience. All right. But you'll stop me if I bore you. Uh, so, so the January effect uh, uh, involves stock investing. So... Um, many years ago, there was a, tra- a trading pattern that emerged in which um, stocks would typically trade down price-wise in January and then rebound quickly after, I'm sorry, trade down price-wise in December and then rebound in January. And the reason this was happening is that investors were selling um, stocks they had lost money on in December in order to lock in tax losses. And then they would buy back the stocks in January once once the um, the tax considerations were locked in. Um, so for a while, people who knew what was going on, um, you know, a small crowd of investors who knew that what was happening, realized there was a buying opportunity here that they could buy stocks on December twentieth and then uh, sell them you know, on January fifth and you know, make a quick profit by doing this. But what happened is a lot of the people who made money off this um, this trade, they didn't keep the secret to themselves. They wrote journal, journal articles about it. They gave interviews to the Wall Street Journal and the like. And unsurprisingly, um, lots of people then started to try, try to buy stocks in, in, in December. Uh, and when they did that, uh, those stocks were longer depressed in price. So the whole January effect went away because of the publicity that it uh, generated. And I kind of feel like something similar could happen here, that, that 
all the women who are now moving to New York City because they think there are lots of guys in there, well, maybe they, they'll be more inclined to consider Denver or Seattle because, the at least for the marriage-minded women, those might be better places to locate. Yeah, and I, I hear what you're saying, John, about uh, ethics and sexuality, but I think one of the great challenges is that uh, ethical imperatives really have a tough time surmounting biological drives because all ethical imperatives that went counter to optimum reproduction strategy tended to get weeded out of the gene pool. So you really are, I think, running right up against the biggest uh, wall that ethics faces, uh, which is, uh, hey, I'm going to be really a a nice guy when there's an excess of women. Well, that means you get less reproductive success than the CADs and that gene tends to. So, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but as far as ethics goes, I think it's it's one of the biggest humps for uh, uh, for people to get over. And it, it does seem to be dominated by these reproductive strategies. Well, I mean, there, there are lots of types of human behavior that's instinctive, but, but we've learned to, um, to control. Like the, um, the, the human brain is basically hardwired to, um, uh, to fear and run from the unknown. Um, and that's because we, we evolved at a time when avoiding predators or avoiding bad weather was kind of the foremost concern of, of prehistoric man. Um, but the, nowadays, every time we hear thunder, we don't cower. Um, every time we see somebody who is not a member of our tribe, so to speak, um, we don't, don't try to kill them. Um, you know, so there are ways that, that human behavior has adapted beyond what our, uh, our intrinsic nature might, um, you know, might push us towards. And one of the things, I think it's an excellent point, one of the things that I thought was really refreshing about your book was the degree to which uh, it took some of the, the burden of, of shame and failure off of people, in particular successful, attractive, educated, and intelligent women, that, you know, you're not bad at gambling if you keep losing when the house is going to inevitably win. And uh, helping people to understand the numbers game that they're up against takes, I think, this sense, and some of the women in your book describe it this way, like a burden, a weight lifted from my shoulders because it's not just me. There's not something I'm fundamentally doing wrong. Uh, it's just that, you know, if you pan for gold uh, on a beach, uh, you're, you're just not going to have much luck. But it's not because you're bad at panning. It's you're on the wrong place. So the, the whole way I became interested in this topic uh, was just because I, I knew all these single women in their 30s and 40s who literally had everything going for them from you know, being good people and fun, um, good company, very attractive, uh, uh, yet they, so many of them were unhappily single and they had these dating histories, these dating stories that just made so little sense to me. Either they had guys who mistreated them or cheated on them or they claimed to never get asked out on dates at all. And you know, all the guys I knew, um, particularly at my last two employers, uh, Fortune and Money Magazines, you know, all the guys were basically dorks like me and we were all married. Um, but the women, you know, they, they had a lot more going for them and they were single and I couldn't, and this kind of caused me to explore the, the topic of of why there seemed to be this imbalance or this um, mismatch between dateability and and actual dating outcomes. And I, and I do think that as 
I explored the data and began talking to friends about how lopsided the dating market was. Um, it, it was comforting to know that it wasn't it wasn't their fault. And and so many of the dating books out there basically tell women that they've been going about it all wrong. That they've been. Um, uh, you know, they, they've been returning his text message an hour too early or an hour too late, or they've been, you know, uh, calling him at the wrong hour. I mean, all, all these sorts of silly things that, that if you really think about it intellectually, you know, it's pretty clear that, that, that this doesn't actually these kinds of things aren't important. Um, uh, what kind of, what kind of a restaurant you go to on the first date really isn't going to stop you from connecting with somebody who's truly your, you know, your, your perfect match. Um, but so much of the advice out there focuses on these, um, generally inconsequential things that, that, uh, supposedly are getting in the way of women finding Mr. Right. Oh yeah, no, it, it is uh, this 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 detailed tweaking uh, while missing out the big picture. Like if if no one's hiring, it doesn't matter what the font on your resume is. It's not going to work. Right. I, I mean, and, and if you think about it, um, we would never. If you or I tried to apply this kind of logic to anything else, we would be laughed at. So if I needed a surgeon, and I you know, I I knew a really great doctor, and I called him up or called her up and she returned my call in five minutes. Am I going to not have her do my knee surgery because she was too enthusiastic? Uh, you know, or, or if you're my best friend and I text you um, about you want to go out for a beer and you text back right away, like, you know, am I going to say, oh, you know, Stefan is too enthusiastic. <laughs> you know, I, I got to get somebody else to drink with who will like, text me back in two hours, not two minutes. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Right. I guess especially if it's 7 a.m. and I say, well, I've already started, that may not be the best uh, <laughs> social engagement to think of. Now, one thing I thought that was, I, I'll be jumping around a little bit in the book, but of course I want people to buy it, not <laughs> just have us describe it. But in the book, I thought something that you pointed out was quite fascinating was the degree to which assertiveness or brinksmanship on the part of women tended to precipitate marriage, you know, the, the ultimatum. And I thought the degree to which women's confidence, if they lack the numbers, like if they lack the data as to the scarcity, you know, as you point out in the book, uh, 60-40, a 60-40 ratio, which is not uncommon in some U.S. colleges, 60-40 yeah. women to men. And of course, some of those men are going to be gay, some of them are going to be in relationships, some of them are going to be asexual and so on. And it, I thought the degree to which women's confidence gets eroded by these constant rejections or these slippery guys that they can't seem to hang on to because they're always out there scouting for going up one-tenth on the point of attractiveness or something, the degree to which their confidence gets eroded to the point where they feel unable to make the kind of ultimatums that do seem to precipitate marriage, it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's a very lopsided gender ratio. And um, it's it's clear it gives men the upper hand, and the women who perhaps came from a high school environment or some other environment where it was 50-50 and they're very attractive and they're used to having guys um, uh, asking them out or, or flirting with them constantly, suddenly they get to a college like Skidmore or a city like Miami and it's different um, and they can't figure out why and they start blaming themselves. But, but to your point, um, there does seem to be a an advantage to the woman who's aggressive, and I and I think part of the the reason why um, 
women resist this is because there's this notion out there, and maybe you can tell me whether you agree with, with, with my take or not, but I think there's a false notion out there that men genuine, genuinely enjoy the chase. I, I don't think men do enjoy the chase. I just think that if men enjoyed the chase, there'd be no delivery for food, right? When we go out and hunt deer, it's like, I like phoning for a pizza, having the pizza come to my house. I mean, the, the idea that I want to go chase down a rabbit and take it apart with my bare hands. No, no. Right. Anyway, sorry, go on. Right. I mean, when I was single, I'll be honest, I, I liked women who liked me. Uh, and I, I'm sure, you know, I'm not claiming to be the... Um, you know, to be the, uh, you know, the benchmark for all men. But I, I, I think men appreciate women who express interest. And I, I remember having a, and this is in the book, I had a conversation with my, um, my rabbi about, about all the, all of these topics. And he, when he marries young couples, he typically does a month or two of premarital counseling with them. And he, he had 10, soon-to-be-married couples um, in counseling, and he told me of those 10, I think seven or eight of them shared a, a similar story, and that was that the guys all had multiple choices, but the women whom they married were the ones who pursued them most aggressively. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you want to close a sale, you don't wait for the customers to call you. You you corner them and <laughs> supply them with value until they give up, <laughs> so right. to speak. So, no, and and that was certainly the case with with my marriage and my wife uh, when we first met. Was um, you know, I'm interested, but I I'm not interested in a player. I want to settle down and have kids, and that's going to be the parameters if we're going to go forward. And I'm like, yeah, okay, so she's interested. It's it's not complicated. Uh, um, no, I, I think the the simpler the better. Uh, the idea that you know they. I get annoyed just when I get a piece of electronics in packaging that's hard to open, let alone chasing some woman who's giving me mixed signals. That's just not to get no, I, I, I completely agree. And then you mentioned ultimatums before. I mean, my, um, to me, an ultimatum for a woman is kind of an antidote to something else. So, so the, when the, there's this truism in, in business and politics, and I think many other walks of lives that, or many other areas that, um, it's never smart to make a decision any sooner than you have to. And I think even when I was younger, my dad used to give me that advice. And it's good advice generally. But when you think about that kind of advice as it applies to dating and as it applies to men, the takeaway for a college-educated man might be, um, if I shouldn't make a, de a decision any sooner than I have to, maybe I should um, hold off on making a lifelong commitment to my girlfriend while I continue to survey the marketplace. And you could argue that's a rational response to an abundant marketplace or an, uh, an abundant supply of women. Um, so to me, a, a woman who makes a marriage ultimatum is pushing back against that. Um, what she's doing is creating artificial scarcity in an otherwise abundant marketplace, basically um, making the man uh, make a decision, making him fear he may lose what he, um, what he already has. Right. No, and I think that is a wise thing because, uh, you know, the, the general historical prejudice or stereotype is that women are after commitment and men are after sex. And of course, if what you want is sex, then you can go into these places with these disparate gender ratios and uh, be the pudgy Lothario as, as much as you want to be. But uh, of course, if you're interested in settling down and having a family, the decision is, should come sooner rather than later because people close in age tend to do better uh, in marriage. And um, 
So you don't want to be trading in for the younger model all the time. That's going to provide some statistical instability to your marriage foundation. And you want to try and find someone who you're going to be compatible with and settle down with. And again, you know, sooner rather than later. But uh, I think it, it creates a scarcity that most people aren't as aware of as they should be. And as you point out in the book, like... Uh, there was one just these heartbreaking little vignettes. This woman who said, uh, I think she was in her early 40s, and she said, um, oh, you know, the, I would have accepted the guy probably who proposed to me 15 years ago if I'd have known how stacked the deck was against me moving forward. And well, so well, I think that scarcity exists. Yeah, I mean, that story really uh, it resonated with me too, in part because she she was acknowledging in, in some ways that um, – that had she married that guy, she doesn't think that the marriage would have worked out. But she actually said to me, well, at least I would have been married. Hmm. Right. So. Now, let's, let's delve into some of the more exciting areas of sexual politics at the moment. Um, you, you touched on this in the book. I'm just wondering if you've had more thoughts on it since, John, that um, when, when we look at some of the sexual or romantic tensions that seem to be rife in U.S., campuses these days, in particular, I'm thinking of UVA and uh, the, I think, recently discredited rape story uh, earlier uh, with regards to the frat and, and the woman and so on. And you point out in the book that college women are twice as likely as college men to experience psychological distress after hookups. And biologically, that, to me, evolutionarily makes perfect sense because of the costs for women for uh, sexuality hist- in, in history were infinitely higher almost than that of the men. But I wonder the degree to which the growing caddishness of gender disparate colleges is creating an environment where female resentment is going to grow and may spill over in, into some of these accusations. You see, I, I have a little different take. I, I, I think this increase in campus rape is not um, is real, and neither this is an actual increase in campus assaults, not an increase in accusations. And I, I'm I'm making this argument not um, just you know um, just based on my own gut feeling. It's it's based on a lot of research that's been done on correlations between sex ratios and rates of sexual assault. So the, there's a professor at, uh, I think she was, she's at Columbia, uh, Lena Edlund, who looked at China. And um, as you may know, the um, or I'm sure most of your listeners know that China currently has a, a big gender ratio imbalance in the other direction. That there's about um, 20 to 25% more marriage-age men than marriage-age women. And, and what Edlin found in her study was that as, uh, and this is a byproduct of the old one-child policy that China used to have and, and uh, more Chinese families um, um, engaging in sex selection, essentially, and, and preferring boys. But what Edlin found in her study was that, that um, as the young population skewed male, um, uh, um, property crime rates went up, which makes some sense. That you, you'd think that, like more young men, there could be more robberies and um, um, more uh, more violent crime in general. But the one crime category that went down was rape. Um, and the the thinking on all this is that when women are scarce, men value them more and protect them more. However, if you look at college campuses today where women are overly plentiful or where men are scarce, the reverse happens. Um, men devalue women and um, 
and are less likely to see sexual assault as as a serious act, or or to or the, the, the sexual assault becomes more commonplace because men are less inclined to protect women and they devalue women. Oh, and this, you know, of course, you know, economics is all about the unseen costs, right? the unseen costs. And this is one of the things that just drove me batty in reading your book, like, uh, because the, the degree to which female, the female pursuit of empowerment and, and equality, and to some degree over equality in terms of college attendance, you know, feminists, of course, and rightly so for a long time, have railed against women being treated as sex objects. And so they wanted to empower women to get better education and, and so on. So more women went to college. But if the thesis, which you, I think, amply establish in the book is, is valid, that very success leads to an increasing treatment of women as sex objects because there's so many of them relative to the men that they're less valued. See, I, I don't think feminism has anything to do or much to do with women attending college in higher rates. E even in China, which clearly does not have the same kind of feminist movement that we have in the United States, there are 10% more Chinese women in college than men. And that's amazing when you think about the fact that there are more, about 25% more college-age men than women overall. So I, I don't think um, feminism or politics really has anything to do with why why women are attending college in greater numbers than men. Then, oh yes, and that and that was something because I wanted to go on a good old libertarian rant about Title IX, but unfortunately, you blocked me in the book for reasons. I'll I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I know yeah, it's, it's, it's not. It's, you gotta, yeah, I mean, gotta put a warning on the book, you know, for libertarians, uh, I'm going to block your outrage at bad government policies. So I mean, I mean, I mean, we, we, we can talk about Title IX in a different context. I mean, that, that, yeah. but I, I assume this is something you'll disagree. You, know, you may disagree with me on um, the. One of my pet peeves, and, and you may disagree, is that, that private colleges here in the U.S. are exempt from Title IX when it comes to admissions. So um, what some private colleges, like my own alma mater, Brown University, and many others have de are doing, is they are accepting women at higher rates, I'm sorry, they're accepting men at higher rates than women. So the acceptance rate for men at Brown is 11%. For women, it's uh, 7%. At Vassar College, it's a 34% acceptance rate for for, um, for men, and I think it's 18% for women. So in order to keep their gender ratios more balanced, um, these colleges, some of these elite private colleges, are um, doing kind of quiet affirmative action for men. And what's really interesting is that the public universities that are bound by Title IX when it comes to admissions all accept um, women at a higher rate than men because women do better in high school. They get higher grades. They, um, they're closing the gap on test scores. Uh, they're, you know, they, they, 70% of valedictorians are, are, are girls in high school. So the, so the, the schools that are, are required to have a level playing field when it comes to admissions like Cal Berkeley or University of Michigan or University of Virginia, the, the top public schools accept women at a higher rate. Too many of the private schools are essentially discriminating against women because they are exempt from Title IX. And so to, to crack back to the mystery of, of China and, and how many women are going to higher education there, if I remember rightly, um, the four-letter word, the pill, was... <laughs> was one of the things that giving women control over their reproduction allows them, of course, to have children later or choose when or, or where to have children. And this gives them more opportunities to complete higher education, to not feel that they've got to go to school for their MRS, as the cliche goes. Is that a fair assessment of what you think one of the primary causes is? 
Well, I, I think the Pell explains how we got to 50-50. I think that, you know, so if we had had those conversations 50 years ago, it, the numbers would have been the opposite. It would have been many more men than women attending college. And I think the Pell explains how we got to 50-50 because it, just in economic terms, um, the biggest driver of female gains in college enrollment is the expectation of workforce participation. In other words, you're not going to, you know, if you're going to get married at age 21 or 22 and have kids like a year later, um, the economic value of a college degree isn't terribly high. But if you can delay marriage um, and delay childbirth and spend five, ten years in the workforce, the the economic payoff from college becomes much higher. So, so I, I think the till kind of explains how we got to 50-50. What it doesn't do is explain how we got to a world in which there's, uh, you know, there's 35% more women than men graduating from college, and the U.S. Department of Education thinks it'll be closer to 50% in 10 years. So um, my my take on that question of, of of how we got to lopsided numbers in the other direction is not related to the pill. I, I you know, there's a lot of neuroscience on child development and child brain development, and the consensus seems to be that girl brains mature at a faster rate than boy brains, and that the maturity gap actually widens into the teen years, so that girls have a are intellectually more mature, socially more mature than boys, and this explains why when it comes to schoolwork, girls fare better. It's not that girls are smarter. When it comes to raw intelligence, boys and girls test about the same. But girls uh, girls are essentially a year ahead of boys, which is why I argue in the book that that we should all be thinking about redshirting our boys in order to, to narrow the college gender gap. And that's putting them in uh, to school a year later, right? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. So, so um, yeah, so I, I, my, my belief um, is that boys should start school should start first grade at age seven and girls should start at age six. And if you want to, if you would like me to rant a little bit about Title IX, here's here's the opportunity because okay, uh, hang on, let me just let me just get ready. Okay, all right, um, okay. I'm ready. Okay, all right, go. Uh, so th- th- this is one area where Title IX to me is a huge obstacle because even though the science says that that girls um, are more ready to learn at age the, the, the readiness to learn for girls at age six is comparable to boys at age seven. A school district could never um, have a um, a policy of starting boys later than girls because that would be an obvious violation of Title IX. And Title IX being that you can't gender discriminate in education. And this goes, I think, yeah. as well to, yeah, and this goes as, as some, something that, that I was ready to rant on, but then you diffused, unfortunately, was uh, the degree <laughs> to which, well, it's, it's okay, I, I get used to it. It's just it's still tough every time. Uh, but um, uh, you, you talk about in the book that t- one of the reasons why college presidents don't want to try and get more men into the school is because funding for extracurricular, particularly sports activities, is dependent upon gender ratios. If they cut back on the number of women relative to men, they may have to cut female sports, uh, which is getting kind of an indirect subsidy based upon the gender inequality in the ratios. And that could be, you know, problematic in terms of public perception. Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is the way you get more boys is really expensive. because, But boys are more into... Uh, so so the, the schools that have um, more balanced gender ratios or 
actually have more men than women. They tend to be schools that have big engineering programs, big computer science programs, physics, uh, anything STEM-related. Um, any schools like Johns Hopkins or Caltech or Tufts, uh, schools that, that are big on the sciences are going to have more balanced gender ratios, if not more men than women. But obviously, building a computer lab is is not an inexpensive thing. Um, so I think... Um, uh, I think that's you know that's one of the obstacles to attracting men. It's just the fact that that um, you know it's it's much less expensive to hire a philosophy professor than to build a computer lab. Right, right. And wanted to touch on. There's a great quote in the book, um, which is uh, the, the the Chinese woman who says, "I would rather cry in a BMW than smile <laughs> on the back of my boyfriend's bicycle." Yeah. But having more resources is better than having true love. Uh, which you know, that's her eggs talking, not her heart. But you know, eggs finally usually have a say in what happens. But I was fascinated the degree to which male, well, economic productivity is driven by a man's desire to gather together shiny baubles to attract a mate. I wonder if you, you said 20% of China's GDP growth from 2000 to 2005 could be attributable to the oversupply of men getting on the hamster wheel of wanting to attract women. And the woman who said, uh, um, you got to have your own apartment built later than 2000. You got to have a car and no, a minivan won't do like there's like a laundry list. Like the guy's got to come with a dowry now. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it makes me wonder how much of the Shanghai real estate boom is related to the gender imbalance. Uh, because if, if you're a middle-class guy and you can't get a date or you can't find a wife unless you own your own apartment and own a half-decent car, um, think about the economic stimulus that provides. And the, the, the um, study that you cite um, was uh, was a one done by I think a Columbia University economist and and another academic as well, um, and, and yeah, and they concluded that twenty percent of China's G- GDP growth has been a byproduct of not only young men having to work harder in order to um, uh, impress or attract a, a potential wife, but their parents as well, because the 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 parents are now in some ways subsidizing a, a type of dowry, a reverse dowry, um, by, by, by helping their, their sons buy apartments or buy nice cars so they can, they can find a wife. And there was a fascinating story that I read actually pretty recently. Um, in, it was a Bloomberg News story. And it was talking about this stuff, and it quoted a soon-to-be father, a young, a young married man, and his quote was, I hope I have a girl. It's too expensive to have a boy. And if you think about Chinese culture and how boy-centric it's been for millennia, the fact that a, a young Chinese father would actually um, be um, hoping for a girl, I mean, it just shows how, it just shows what you're talking about. It shows the, the economic impact of this, of this gender imbalance on, on Chinese society. Oh, I mean, I've reiterated this countless times on my show that the the market is to human society like physics is to the natural world. You ignore it at significant peril. Um, Now, I wanted to get to first this this paradox that I really want women to understand, and of course men as well, which is that 
the more you stuff yourself full of human capital, you know, whether it's education, looks, uh, accomplishments, wealth, whatever, whatever you do to stuff yourself up with human capital, and particularly more so for women because of the tendency of women to want to marry up in terms of hypergamy, the higher quality you make yourself, the smaller your dating pool becomes in, in any situation because you want to marry up. And you, you talk about this mixed color marriage as the idea that in some cultures, uh, particularly in the uh, black culture in America, it's more acceptable to marry down because it's, what, it's like two to one or, or higher yeah. um, the black women having college degrees versus black men. But certainly in a lot of cultures, uh, particularly the European cultures, this idea of marrying up. So it's great to stuff yourself full of human capital, but it does mean that your dating pool gets significantly diminished and the dating pool that is left for you to attract as a high-value woman, so to speak, is full of guys who, in a sense, have even higher value than you do because of the gender imbalance. No, you're onto something. Although I will say, it's not just the women who are reluctant to marry down. It's men, too. Um, the, 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 uh, the catch is that when men... Um, when college-educated men insist on, on only dating and marrying college-educated women, they pay no penalty for this because the supply of college-grad women is so vast. So their own kind of classist tendencies don't penalize them, which you know is unfair in some ways, but, but that's, that's the reality. A woman, though, who refuses to consider dating or marrying a working-class guy is doing two things against her interests. One, she's, she's narrowing her dating pool statistically, and two, she's giving way too much leverage to the, um, to the college-educated guys who, as you just said, have more options than she does. Yeah, so that's an important thing. That, that's an important thing to remember. This uh, idea that something is always better around the bend. Well, of course, right. the final bend is just being dead, and there's not much after that. Right. So, in, in so, terms of the, in terms so of the mixed, mixed color marriages, I mean, I, I, I do. This is a little bit of a suggestion in the book, but it's it's also a prediction. I just, I just believe that that if we talk ten years from now, it'll be much more common to see um, pairings and marriages of educated career women married to working class guys because that's where the, um, it seems inevitable because you have more, uh, in the, in the working class dating pool, you have more men than women in the white collar dating pool. You have, uh, more women than men. It just seems inevitable to me that, um, that you're going to see more of these so-called mixed-collar marriages, and as you, you reference the African American community, um, I don't know if you've, have you ever seen a, a Tyler Perry movie. I mean, there's always he's a black filmmaker. You know, yeah, yeah, and the, I haven't, but uh, I, I've certainly heard you, of. You, uh, you, I've you, seen you a could, couple of trailers. You could take my word for it. So there's always you know, all of his movies seem to have a a couple like a high power. African American career woman married to a mechanic with a heart of gold, and uh, I joke that in a white movie, if Julia Roberts' CEO character was married to a fireman, you'd need like a ten-minute on-screen explanation for why she was <laughs> married to the you know to the fireman. But in, the Tyler, but in the Tyler Perry movies, it's you know it's it's accepted. It's it, people are comfortable with that. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you, but I mean, the degree to which, and this is all very theoretical, of course, but the degree to which you could look at uh, college, a college degree as some big, giant, expensive roundabout IQ test, and that IQ compatibility is kind of important for basically what a marriage is, which is a 50-year conversation, 
then um, uh, I think marrying down, it's not so much, oh, you know, he works with his hands and that's bad. It's that I think that you could look at the bell curve of working class versus college educated people, probably see half a standard deviation or even a standard deviation between IQs. And that may not add to compatibility. There may be very practical reasons for that. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you there. And part of this, you know, part of this is a bit personal for me. I mean, my wife and I have a friend from college, a woman, Ivy League educated school teacher. Um, She's married to a working class guy. They've been happily married for 20 years. They've raised a phenomenal kid together. And to me at least, and you can disagree, but to me at least, the whole notion that she married down or settled or compromised or lowered her standards, I I, I have a visceral visceral reaction to it, and I find that whole suggestion offensive. Now, granted, I take this personally because these people are friends of mine, but I, I do not I reject the idea that somebody with a college degree is inherently more marriageable than somebody without a college degree. Well, to to push back on that a little bit, as you know, of course, a singular exception doesn't disprove a general trend. You know, it's the the tall Chinese basketball player syndrome. And uh, to me, it's not a question of marriageable or not marriageable. I mean, working class people are perfectly marriageable. Uh, It just depends on whether there's a, a certain amount of compatibility or not. And I think you could reasonably say that if you were going to look at the bell curve of IQ of people in college, that it would generally be higher. And again, there's lots of overlap and lots of, you know, I, I um, mean, I, I, exceptions, I, know, but. I know plenty of working class guys who make a really good living. Like my, my plumber, I feel like like half of my income you know, over the past year has gone, <laughs> has gone to him. Um, there are plenty of working class guys who are, don't have a college degree and are good businessmen and are smart people. And I, I just can't accept the, the idea that, that, um, that you know that that marrying one of them is marrying down or is, or is lowering standards. Um, I, I, I we may just have to agree to to disagree on this. Um, well, no, part part of it is that if you think about the needs of this new generation of career women. Um, Having a, a husband with a nine-to-five job who can help a little bit more with homework and can go to Little League games or, or dance recitals when she's staying at the office till seven every night, uh, that's actually a pretty good match uh, um, and a more a higher level of compatibility versus two type A career people married to each other who really don't have time for any of those things. Yes, um, I think that's certainly valid. Um, My my point is that it's not that uh, women should not look at working class men. And uh, you're right. If the woman is the high powered, I think you mentioned it's like a third of women close to are the primary owners. Yeah, Yeah. if the woman's high powered, that's what she's doing. Then I mean, I'm a stay at home dad. I'm not going to diss the profession as a whole. But um, it may not be a solution in general, but it certainly can be a solution in a wide variety of very specific instances. That would be sort of my yeah, tons of exceptions. But uh, I, I I reserve judgment about it. I hesitate to say it's the solution for everyone. Well, I mean, can I offer up one more thought on this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, my own feeling is that online dating has actually made this all worse because I don't know. I mean, I've, uh, I mean, the, the one of the the things about online dating is that it's increasingly like picking options on a new car. So you check boxes for what you want. You know, with a car, it's the it's the you know the power steering and the heated seats and things like that. With dating, um, you know it's race, religion, height, weight, dog person, cat person, etc. But the one box that the children of the suburbs 
um, never think twice about checking is college education because, you know, my parents went to college, I went to college, I want somebody who's college educated. And my feeling is that 20 years ago, um, if, um, you know, I were single and I met a woman at a, uh, a, a, church or a beach or a restaurant, um, and she was a college dropout, and I have a college degree, the fact that she had dropped out of college wouldn't really make a huge difference as long as we clicked in some way. But what happens nowadays is college-educated people never even see the dating profiles of non-college-educated people because of the way online dating works. Right. And so that brings us to a, a point that um, I thought was very interesting um, because you've talked to, in two communities, right, the, the Orthodox Jewish community and in the Mormon community, that the values that these communities espouse, as we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, John, the values that these communities espouse also seem to be running up to significant break walls, so to speak, in terms of gender disparity. I wonder if you could briefly help people to understand just how even, you know, no sex before marriage, highly committed, uh, high value on marriage and children, uh, how that's running up against the uh, gender disparities in those communities. Yeah, so so I have a chapter in the book that explores... um, two marriage crises, uh, one among ultra-Orthodox Jews and one among Mormons in Utah. And in both of those communities, um, there's an increasing number of single, um, very marriageable women, and nobody can figure out uh, why there's so many women and why, why some of the men who, are, who are, would be considered good catches, why they're suddenly in no rush to get married themselves. And... Um, the, in both communities, they, they kind of view this as a as a social failing that that, that maybe they're in, they're not doing a good job instilling proper values in young people these days, or maybe the maybe the boys are are too picky, or the girls are all holding out for the the Mormon Jude, George Clooney or or the Jewish George Clooney or something like that. Uh, but in fact, this is all about demographics in the in the Mormon community. For reasons we can get into, uh, men have been leaving the LDS church, the, which is the Mormon church, at a much higher rate than women. So among marriage-age people in Utah, there's about three young women for every two young LDS men. In the ultra-Orthodox community, the um, the cause is, is different. Um, as you may know, ultra-Orthodox Jews have a very, very high birth rate. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty common for ultra-Orthodox Jewish families to have four or five, six kids. And um, that, that would have no impact on marriage if people were, if, if 20-year-olds were marrying other 20-year-olds. But what happens in, in at least part of the Orthodox world is that the girls get married at 18, but the boys go to yeshiva, which is kind of a Jewish um, theological school, um, for three or four or five years, and they don't get married until they finish Jewish seminary. So the boys are getting married at 22 or 23, and the girls are getting married at 18. Um, so, so this is one one segment of ultra-Orthodox Jew, uh, uh, Judaism in which there's been a, an increasing amount of pressure on young men to um, complete 
you know, four or five, six years of, of, Jew, of Torah study and Talmud study before they get married. Um, it, it's not throughout the Orthodox world. As I said, among Hasidic Jews, um, it, you, know, it's, you know, it's equally structured and that, that you know, that uh, they use matchmakers in the same way to pair their young men and women for, marry, for marriage. But among Hasidic Jews, men marry women their own age. Among what's known as the yeshivish or Lithuanian ultra-Orthodox Jews, there's this age gap at marriage. And if you think about um, what happens with a community with a very high birth rate, there are always going to be more 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds, more 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds, more 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds, and so on and so on, because every one-year age group has 4 or 5% more members than the one that preceded it. So um, what, what, but by, create, by having a system or having a, a tradition in which 22 or 23-year-old young men are marrying 18-year-old young women, there are always uh, going to be uh, too many 18-year-old women for too few 22- or 23-year-old men. I hope that made sense. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Okay. Um, so so what's, what's happened, you know, just back to your original question, in both of these communities, which, as you, as you know, are very traditional in terms of, um, of social mores and sexual mores, um, that, that there's this, this um, you know, chlamydia rates in, in Utah are, have skyrocketed. Um, uh, there's intense pressure on um, 16, 17-, 18-year-old young women in the ultra-Orthodox community to appear as, as marriageable as possible. Um, and in fact, the, so, so you have 17-year-old girls who are expected to prepare um, resumes, which are kind of like um, uh, just, uh, descriptions of themselves, um, frequently including glossy photos. And glamour <laughs> Sorry, photos. hang on. So, because you mentioned the resume, hang on, you mentioned the resumes in the book, but I thought that was sort of a satirical term, for, but is, no, is it actually no, no, like, it, here's the portfolio no, of my no, daughter? They're, no, no, they're actually called resumes. And, really? And the sickest thing about it is that the girls are expected to, discl- to disclose to their male suitors not only their own dress size, but the dress size of their mothers. So these, these, these young men can kind of uh, project, well, after she has five kids or six kids, what is she going to look like? Wow. And, and I think as you pointed out uh, that in the Orthodox Jewish community, um, there are, I think, 50% higher rates of anorexia than there is in the general population because yeah, there is because, this belief of thinness needing to be the competitive advantage in this market. No, you have, you have 17-year-old girls being told if they're bigger than a size 6, they won't get married. I mean, it's, it, 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 I mean to me, it's a sickness, and I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm not orthodox, yeah. but I am Jewish. And to me, it would be an act of compassion, an act of kindness, if, um, if the rabbis in the orthodox world would, would get together and agree not to, marry 20, not to marry any women below the age of 21, because um, it's putting unhealthy pressure on um, 16, 17-year-old Orthodox girls to appear marriageable, and I, I don't think a sixteen or seventeen year old girl should be worried about her dress size. Well, and and there's this this statement that again the, the book is is very well written and researched, but there's this jaw dropping stuff in there for me where where the 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 
the girls have to come with a kind of weird dowry because, of course, the boys, a lot of the boys in these um, uh, communities are going off, as you say, to study the Talmud and to, to, to research for years. Yeah. And so the, the girls' parents, was it, was it a rabbi or a matchmaker who was saying, oh, yes, the top-level boys cost $100,000 a year. We have boys for 70000 a year, maybe even 50000 a year if you want to go cheap. I mean, I know it's not human trafficking, but it, it really yeah, well, seems well, it, very it, strange. It, it shows, I mean, basically, I don't think they use the word dowry, but, that, but effectively that's what it is. Um, what, these are essentially financial promises that the bride's family makes to support the young, the, the young couple for the three or four or five years that he's off at Jewish seminary studying, studying Torah and Talmud. Um, so the, the parents are, of the girls are, are under such um, stress and, and the boys have such market power that, that they can kind of extract these, you know, the, the young men can extract these financial promises from, from their bride-to-be's family. I mean, it's, um, it's essentially a reverse dowry. Right. Right. And I mean, that is really quite astounding. But of course, uh, because there's uh, a desire to marry within the community, there is, of course, a smaller pool. You, you can't balance it out, so to speak, by importation from outside the community nearly as easily as you say. I think only 2% right. of Orthodox Jew, uh, Jews marry outside uh, the right. faith. So I mean, that really is kind of a tariff wall, so to right. speak. But, of, but, of but, but as, I, as I mentioned before, there is this segment of the Orthodox world, Hasidic Jews, where Basically, everybody gets married at 18, and then and then the guy goes off and gets a job. Um, you know, he's not spending five years, you know, in Jewish seminary. And if you ask a, a an Hasidic Jew about what the other Orthodox Jews call the Shaduk crisis, they have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, they, they um, I mean, they've heard the term, but the whole notion of there being a marriage crisis and too many unmarried women, it's completely unfamiliar to them because there isn't this demographic quirk of, of more 18-year-olds and it doesn't, it doesn't matter in the Hasidic world that there are more 18-year-olds than 23-year-olds because 18-year-olds are only marrying other 18-year-olds. Right, right. Well, um, I was originally in, in this conversation, I was going to touch upon your solutions, but I've kind of decided against that. It's your interview, so let me know. But I, I, wanted the, I want the, the carrot for, for people to pick up your book to be the excellent uh, chapter or two on solutions and things that you can do to counteract these numbers, which are very hard to overcome. And so I, I've decided to veer off from solutions in hopes of enticing people to pick up, you know, a short, highly entertaining, well-written, very readable and potentially life-changing book that you've written. So I'm going to try and veer off from solutions and hope that people will then click below this, this conversation and actually uh, pick up the book. But uh, as far as I understand it, of course, you're all over the media promoting it. And uh, I think that's a great thing. And um, do you think, do you, would you be tempted to go back into this world again? I know it's a bit of a departure from the stuff you've done before, but how do you find yourself in this milieu? Is it enjoyable? Is it, how is it relative to what you expected? Well, it's certainly a change. I normally cover much duller things like, you know, <laughs> like energy and the stock market, things like that. Um, I, I will say that when I've Talk to, people ask me what my next book is about, and I, I don't have a great answer to that yet. But I have had a couple people tell me I should do a book about the economics of divorce. Um, I, mm. yeah, I, I'm not sure that you know that's maybe too depressing. I think I need a happier book for my next book. 
Well, you know, it's uh, it's not depressing if you help people avoid the catastrophe of divorce. <laughs> I had a guy on here who did a documentary called Divorce Corps. You know, it's I guess it's depressing to do an anti-smoking book, but just think of all the healthy lungs that come out of it. So that would be my <laughs> suggestion around that. But uh, all right. Well, well, thanks a, a lot, John. A, a really enjoyable chat. And I appreciate the book uh, very much. Again, just to remind people, Dateonomics, O-N-O-M-I-C-S, Dateonomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers game. We'll put the link below. Uh, go, go pick it up. Go hand it out, particularly to uh, women who are staring at a TV, wondering why there's dust gathering on the cell phone. It really will help them to become more proactive in finding ways to solve the inevitable results of these uh, lopsided gender ratios where they happen to be. There are solutions out there. John explains them very well. And uh, I, for what it's worth, I highly recommend it. And thanks so much for your time, John. It was a great pleasure. You're welcome. Take care.